morning, afternoon, and evening, and welcome to the 8311Cast, your premier Midwestern-based sports podcast, bringing you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, Ariane Berry, and Wyatt Teeter as we talk to you about college basketball, the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, and of course, our signature segments, Mike's Stupid Rules, and Write That Down Predictions, here on episode 162. Not sure how much you're on the social media, but if you're on Twitter, you should definitely check out our account at 8311Cast. We tweet some awesome stuff all the time. Definitely check it out. Winter Olympics are also happening right now, which is pretty cool. We're a couple days in, and the the U.S. already has a couple medals to their name. Uh, Three silver medals, to be specific. One for figure skating in a team event, one for the women's moguls for freestyle skiing, and one for uh, the women's snowboard slope style. Uh, Those last two were... Acquired by Jalen Koff and Julia Marino. Uh, and then the first one for the figure skating was, of course, a team event. Um, the U.S. has three medals right now, which is not very many. If you're looking to see other medal events here coming up soon, um, when you're listening to this episode, it comes out on Tuesday, February 8th. There's the Women's Free Ski Big Air Final, which is a medal event. The Men's Super G, the Men's 20-kilometer individual biathlon and then the men's 1500 meter speed skating event, which is always interesting. And then on Wednesday, February 9th, um, we'll have the men's free ski big air final, which is actually a really interesting one to watch. So if you're into the Olympics or just want to watch the medal events because those are quote unquote the coolest ones, uh, definitely check those out within the next coming days. Yeah, in, in the other world of teams who aren't winning very many medals recently, uh, we have this Cyclone men's team. And the hype that surrounded the team this season is uh, quickly dissipating, I would say, around Cyclone Nation. And there's the realization setting in that this team is not um, what we were had false hope for at the beginning of the season, I would say. Um, it, it's been ugly recently. 0-2 this last week um, against two two quad one um, opponents that could have been big victories for the Cyclones to bolster their NCAA resume when it comes to the net rankings, which the committee looks at often, as Mike has, has talked about um, at nauseum on this podcast, but it, it just didn't go, didn't go well at all. I mean, you, you give up, a lot of points to Kansas l- without their leading scorer and the Big 12's leading scorer, Ochai Abaji, in that game. And it there was just seemed to be a lack of energy and effort um, for an environment that is so amped up when Kansas comes to Hilton Coliseum. I, students camp out for the whole week, typically. This is the game that everyone marks on their calendar as you you go to that game and we beat Kansas at home. But that hasn't been the case recently. Iowa State, I believe, now has dropped six straight to Kansas um, after this loss. Some details about the game. Iowa State only shot 41% from the field, which uh, we would have taken that um, in the game later in the week against Texas. Only five of 22 from three. Isaiah Brockington himself took 28 field goal attempts in this game uh, on his way to 24 points. It was a labor of love from the field for him. But one thing that we highlighted as an absolute key to victory for this game was you win the battle of the paint in the paint in this game. 
you keep David McCormick out. Uh, you keep them from driving their stupid alley-oop plays that work so well all the time. I mean, what is Bill Self known for? Alley-oop. Backdoor alley-oop out of a timeout. Iowa State gave up a couple of those. Uh, it, it, just a little bit more. I mean, KU out-rebounded Iowa State 35-23. to I mean, no surprise, Iowa State hasn't been great at rebounding recently, but usually the margin's a little bit closer to that. Um, KU had 34 points in the paint. What more do you want? What What more do you want uh, to to say to you know just go to the argument that Iowa State played the the did the opposite of what the strategy should have been going into this game. Um, we weren't efficient on defense in that sense, and Iowa State somehow lost a game at home while the opponent had 22 turnovers. I'm just going to take a second to, to let that sink in. 22 turnovers is, is what KU committed, and Iowa State was able to make nothing of that. A lot of those were dead ball turnovers. It, that's the difference between what has plagued Iowa State recently um, in, in some of their games is live ball turnovers turning into ter- too many transition points. Um, but ter- 22 turnovers in a game, that's 22 extra possessions um, that Iowa State took zero, absolutely zero advantage on. Um, this game in the second half got close. I think the, the margin got down to four or six at one point, somewhere in there. But KU kept it at arm's length with the, the lead in the second half around 10, around double digits. And it just was ugly. The game was ugly. The offense wasn't awesome. The defense just didn't seem to have its mojo. Um, and it wasn't working. And that carried over into, into Austin when they traveled to see Texas. 41 points. You know, when you score 41 points on offense, you are not winning games. I don't care who you are, how good your defense is. 41 points is not going to win you a single game. Maybe, maybe against a non-conference opponent where, you know, they turn the ball over 30 times and only score 38 points, but not many teams in Division I in basketball score under 50 in a game and win. Um, 29% from, field, from the field, 2 of 13 from 3. I believe both of those three-pointers were from Caleb Grill, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and Texas had 18 assists on offense compared to five assists that Iowa State had. What does that mean? The ball wasn't the ball wasn't moving. There was no ball movement. A lot of off and it, people weren't or players weren't making shots either is what that leads to. Uh, 18 Iowa State turnovers. That's also a portion of where the lack of assists came from. But the big stat there, I talked about it. One of the things that's plagued this team recently is live ball turnovers. 24 points off turnovers is what Texas had. I mean, take take that those points out. If you don't have 24 points off of turnovers, this game's a little bit closer. But yeah, you you're still you shouldn't win a basketball game when you only score 41 points. We'll just keep going back to that. Defense wasn't there either. Too many open three-point shooters. Andrew Jones, I believe, was at one point he was four or five in this game uh, from three for Texas. And they, the rotation, Iowa State was over-pursuing a lot on some of those drives. And Texas was able to, to hurt him with, with really good uh, passing. And that's where their assist came from. 
they didn't turn the ball over as much as Iowa State did, and that's what won them the game. Well, what does this what does this mean for my for Iowa State this week? Well, before before we get into what's going forward, there's something else I want to talk about, right? And that's that the Cyclone defense was decent at forcing turnovers in these two games, but they did not turn those turnovers into points, right? Like you said, Iowa State's 18 turnovers led to uh, 24 Texas points, but Iowa State, despite uh, turning Texas over double-digit times, only had, I think it was four points off turnovers for the entire game, right? Iowa State is struggling to turn those turnovers into points, and that's a that's a problem too. I mean, it's only turning the ball over is only so good if you're not going to score at it. Yeah, we've highlighted that before too. I think it was the TCU game. They didn't score any points off of turnovers at all. It, it seems to be a, a common and I before it translates over to the fast break too we don't seem to know how to run the court and be efficient and get up there and score points and I'm not exactly sure why but that seems to be a common theme with us well I I think I know why we just don't have a point guard who's comfortable pushing the basketball um what we've seen a lot recently out of Tyrese Hunter is when he goes too fast the ball becomes a hot potato in his hands a little bit it's it's bouncing a lot of different directions and not the not the ways that we want there's been a lot of times when he's dribbled the ball off his leg out of bounds he just carelessly lost it or lost his dribble on drives and had to collect it and then there's no momentum left on his drive to the basket i forget what game it was but at the end of the game uh, oh it was the oklahoma state game on the road i one of those drives at the end of the second half driving just dribbles the ball straight out of bounds um steps on the end line too at one point it there's just a little bit of immaturity still in his game i think that's going to evolve uh in the coming years when he has a little bit more um experience under his belt but we just don't have a point guard who's comfortable pushing it and i would think that trey jackson might have some of that uh mojo off the bench to maybe push the basketball but he can't caleb girl's too slow Isaiah Brockington is not a great ball handler. Uh, Gabe Kalsher, I don't think, has any confidence right now. And who else are you left with Our to handle the ball? The slowest people I ever see on the court, man. Robert and, Jones and Jazz so and Jazz Koontz, Jazz Koontz doesn't dribble the ball. We That's talked true. about this. You made a prediction on it that he doesn't dribble the ball that much in a game. And we just don't have we don't have ball handlers like we're accustomed to. Monte Morris. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton, players who can really push the issue, push the envelope. Even Prentice Nixon was better at that than any of the point guards that we have right now. Um, Donovan Jackson was much better at it, but is he played too fast for his own good sometimes. And maybe that'll help next year with, with the arrival of uh, Lipsy from, from Ames High School. But right now, Iowa State doesn't have that, that true point guard um that's comfortable that's comfortable with the ball in his hands no matter what the situation is so that's that's why we we pull up so fast i in in some of those fast break opportunities i will say seeing all of this and our shortcomings as a team and all these issues we have i feel like we really need to give a lot of credit to coach tj uh this team is obviously not the most talented team but they work their butts off every single week we have a great record it's been disappointing as of late but we won two games last year 
he brought in basically an entire new squad and instilled that, you know, culture in them that we need to work hard. We need to play defense. And we didn't do great this last week. And it feels like our defense wasn't as good. But KU averages 80 points a game and they scored 60. And Texas, like we held them, I think, five points below their season average as well. And we are still in the top 10 in defensive efficiency in, in the NCAA. Like it feels bad to lose by defense because you just watch those balls bounce off the rim like 90 times a game. But like the defense is still doing work. It's just not enough when our offense is somehow worse than our top 10 defense. Our offense is that much worse. But, you know, credit to the guys for working their butts off and they do every game, even if it doesn't look like it. Sometimes it's hard to play defense and they play hard almost every game. Yeah, this this team is definitely still a lot better um, than we thought they were. This is a team that de- the defense keeps them in most games. And if this team shoots well, they're a top 15 team in the nation. They can compete with pretty much anybody. We saw that um, against Baylor at home and, and at KU. If this team shoots well, they can compete with anybody. Unfortunately, they very rarely shoot well, um, which is which is sort of what, what's killing them. I mean, they still... Um, they're still they're still solid. They're still fun to watch. I mean, they're they're not as good as they looked when they were a top ten team at one point, but they're 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 a, they're a very solid Power Five conference basketball team. I would say for sure. So n- better than we expected, but now it feels disappointing because they they brought our hopes up there for a second. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can get back on track a little bit this week. Uh, I mean, it's never an easy trip to Morgantown, West Virginia. That's that's their first game of the slate this week. Uh, that is a 6 o'clock tip-off on Tuesday, uh, February 8th. Uh, that game will be airing on ESPN+. Plus. And then finishing out the week on Saturday at home uh, versus K-State. Um, not not a, a really an easy game either. K-State has its night where they're, nights where they're on. Uh, they're they're very up and down like Iowa State seems to be in conference play right now. Uh, that game tipping off on a th- at 3 p.m. on ESPNU. Uh, final question around this men's team right now is eight remaining games left in conference, including the two games this week. It, how many games does this team have to win to make the tournament? It, do you see this team falling out of uh, the NCAA tournament or landing on the bubble? at some point in the near future? Or do you think that this team still is in pretty solid position to make the NCAA tournament? So they're 3-7 and seven now in conference. Um, I think we said going into the year, if they won eight conference games, um, they're probably in um, the tournament. Um, so that would mean going 5-3 and three down this stretch. Um, would would I'd feel comfortable if they went five and three down this stretch? I'd feel pretty comfortable that they're going to make it. Um, how many do they need to win? Probably four, counting a game, or four including a Big Twelve tournament game or any Big Twelve tournament games. If they win four more games, it gets them to twenty wins, and it's hard to turn down a, a major conference team with twenty wins for the NCAA tournament. So I'm thinking 20 wins is the magic number to get them in. But if they're only at 20, we're definitely going to be sweating come come Selection Sunday. Their net ranking is still 31. So they're still fine in the net ranking. 
yeah, I think if we can go four and four and split down the stretch, I don't have any question that we'll probably get. Uh, maybe not as high a seed as we thought we were going to maybe a month ago, but I think that they'd be safe there. If you're looking at three and five down the stretch and you bow out early at the tournament, I think then you have to worry a little bit. I think you still have a chance, but feels kind of 50-50 to me at that point. Um, but if we can just go 44 or 504 and four, which I think that the numbers bear out, technically we should do that as far as BPI. Uh, I think we should be good to get in the tournament. And honestly, with this team, the way they shut people down, there is a chance that we can disrupt people enough that we could go somewhere in the tournament despite our shortcomings. For sure. Like I said, if this team shoots well, they can beat anybody for sure. Um, so the, this team certainly has a chance if they can shoot well. And 4-4 four and four certainly seems realistic. You'll probably be favored in four, maybe five of your remaining games um, down the stretch. You'll be favored at home against K-State, at home against West Virginia, at home against Oklahoma State for sure, probably at home against Oklahoma, and you have a chance to be favored at K-State as well. So this five wins is definitely uh, a possibility for this team, and if they do, we'll be fine for Selection Sunday. At K State has a forty three point eight percent BPI for us right now. So, so, so depending on how the teams play in the next three weeks, yeah, it could switch a little will, bit. Will depend who's favored there. I don't love that our season finale is against Baylor. At Baylor, that's going to be kind of a crappy way to end our season, especially since Baylor is well known for kicking our butts. Yeah, we're going to have to make some hay here in the next three weeks. We don't play another top twenty five team until. Um, that Baylor game to end the conference season. So we need to we need to pick those games up before we go to Waco because we're not going to pick one up there. And Baylor BPI gives us a nine point nine percent chance of that one. So not looking great in the eyes of the metrics there. Yeah, and we did mention the Big Twelve tournament. Um, remember when it comes to seeding that Oklahoma State is not eligible for the Big Twelve tournament this year. Um, they're on uh, suspension for some recruiting violations. Um, so it'll be a nine-team Big 12 tournament. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at I, when you're looking at the seeding. Oklahoma State doesn't count, so just ignore them. Um, not that it would matter. They're ahead of us right now, but still, um, just, just ignore them when it comes to seeding for matchups. So uh, On the women's side, though, it was a much more successful week um, they had two absolutely dominating victories this week. And one of them was uh, a really impressive one against uh, uh, K-State. Um, K-State um, has, that, ba- has that, uh, that, that post player, Lee, who put up 61 earlier in the season, if you remember, we talked about that. And uh, the Cyclones held her to 12 points um, over the course of the game. Um, and mostly they did that by making her catch the ball um, way out of the post, right? So we were making her catch it outside the blocks, right? And making her fight her way in, which she wasn't as successful with, with the ball. She wasn't as successful moving with the ball as she is scoring once she has it. That was a great strategy for Iowa State um, to keep her um, away in what was a 70 to 55 victory in a game that wasn't even that close. Um, Iowa State was up by uh, 22 at the start of the th- of, of the fourth quarter, so this game was never really particularly close. Um, so that was good um, for the Cyclones. 
to get that win because K-State is a borderline top 25 team. So getting the season sweep over them was good. Um, and then they also um, destroyed a really bad Oklahoma State team. Um, uh, they beat them by, uh, doing quick math here, by 18 um, as well. Um, no, is that right? Yeah, 18 as well. Um, and, I mean, that was just a, just a solid win. Um, Emily Ryan and Lexi Donarski had uh, had great weeks, both of them. They, they shot really well and were, were great uh, distributing the basketball. It was good to see other people. Um, take the lead um, and give some support to Ashley Jones. Um, it was really impressive. Um, the team moved up to number nine in the uh, AP poll, um, so they're back in the top ten and uh, looking in good position. They're still tied for first in the Big 12 standings with OU. Um, there's only one game this week for the Cyclone women, and it's against a bad TCU team, like a really, really bad TCU team, like a 6-13 and 13 TCU team. Um, it, is, uh, it is on the road, but this is still one that uh, you just got to pound them. You just got to go take this team and pound them and then, then move on to some tougher tasks um, in the weeks ahead. So take care of business this week and then get ready for a big, big week next week. Um, and speaking of uh, a, a big week coming up, that's what we have in the NFL. Um, now that the awful Pro Bowl is done, they were basically playing two-hand touch football out there in the Pro Bowl. Um, if anybody watched that, I hope you didn't. It was just awful. Um, but this week we've got uh, the Super Bowl coming up, and we'll talk about that um, in a little bit. But first, Ariane is going to run us through the uh, the coaching hires that we had here um, all of the head coaching vacancies that we've had in the NFL are uh, filled at this point. Yeah, so they are either officially filled or they are unofficially filled with pretty much 100% certainty of who they are going to hire. I think it, I believe we talked about this on an earlier episode. At one point, a quarter of the league was without head coach, and we had nine, I think, to fill. So I'm just going to go down them really quick here. Uh, the Saints are promoting their defensive coordinator, who is Dennis Allen. That was the latest one that just got announced. The Texans are reportedly going to promote their defensive coordinator, Lovey Smith, uh, former head coach of the Bears and also U of I. Uh, the Dolphins have hired 49ers offensive coordinator Mike McDaniel. The Jaguars hired former Eagles coach Doug Peterson, who won a Super Bowl there with them. Uh, the Raiders are going to hire Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels. If you recall, the Colts also tried to hire Josh McDaniels, and then he backed out, and it was really awkward for everybody. Uh, the Giants are hiring Bills offensive coordinator Brian Dabble. I could be saying that wrong. Uh, the Broncos are hiring Packers offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett. The Bears are hiring the Colts defensive coordinator Matt Eberflus. Minnesota is rumored to be bringing in Rams offensive coordinator Kevin O'Connell. So the Minnesota hire and the Texans hire are not official yet, but those are pretty much looking like a lock at that point for us. And that's all the head coaching. So it looks like it's kind of shaken out for us there. Yeah. Buying another Josh McDaniels like situation with uh, one of those informal announcements. Uh, those will be your head coaches for next year. Um, so we'll turn our attention to the big game coming up on Sunday. Um, the Rams are favored in this game. Um, they're four and a half point favorites, um, which is probably about what I expected. I think the Rams are probably the better team here. 
Um, you have a couple facts about these two teams you wanted to share with us, Ariana. Is that right? Yeah. So I feel like the Bengals are just kind of playing with house money here. It doesn't really matter. All the pressure should be on the Rams. They need to win this game. Nine of 22 Rams starters are first round picks, which is wild. There are a ton of first-round picks. There are a ton of the best guy from a team that they grabbed and gathered together while trading around. I mean, it's good they have that many first-round picks starting because they've traded all their first-round picks. Meanwhile, the Bengals won two games two years ago, and they are in the Super Bowl now. They are excited to be here. They didn't expect to be here, but they're ready to do it now. And the Rams, they had to be here. That was their only goal, and they did it. So they need to win the Super Bowl to make it worthwhile for everything they gave up. And then uh, I put a little note in here. Oh, I just want to say, the Bengals, I agree. There's no pressure on them. They're ahead of schedule um, that they expected to be in their competitive window. So I expect they'll be competitive for years to come um, with Joe Burrow. He looks good. So. Yeah, they have a ton of young stars on the offense that will, even if they don't get better, if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to get back here. If they can excel in this draft and draft a couple of, I don't know, offensive linemen who can protect their quarterback who is sacked more than any other quarterback in the league. A couple defensive guys to shore that up. This team looks legit for a long time. Yeah, they do. Um, I don't know if anybody has thoughts or predictions on the game. We kind of talked about it last week, but I don't know if we finalized anything. Do we want to go on the board here? I, I would say that, you know, the Bengals, right, they have nothing to lose. And one of the keys, I think, to this game, we all know how good that Rams defensive line is, right? Aaron Donald, defensive player of the year candidate every single year with, with how good he is. Uh, then you bring in Vaughn Miller, you have Leonard Floyd. The Rams defensive line is stacked. They're good at linebacker, too. Joe Burrow, like you said, in 2021, during the regular season, he's been pressured on 24.5% of his dropbacks. So literally a quarter of the time, he he drops back to pass. He's under heavy pressure. Um, he's, I think, one of the keys to this game, he showed it against Kansas City. It's going to be his scrambling ability. Uh, he averages 5.4 yards per scramble. On attempts this season, uh, this is all courtesy of Pro Football Reference, um, and I, I think that the Rams are going to have to play uh, a little bit of containment against him. Joe Burrow has been phenomenal out of the pocket. I believe one of the games that I was watching uh, Week 17 this season, when the Bengals and the Chiefs played in Cincinnati, uh, they had a a graphic that Joe Burrow had completed the most yards uh, in the National Football League, or he had the most passing yards in the National Football League outside of the pocket. So he's he's better outside of the pocket right now than he is inside. And I think the Rams, if they're going to have uh, have a have a good chance really to uh, keep Joe Burrow from going for 400 yards in this football game, possibly, it's they're going to have to maybe keep him inside the pocket more than they're used to. Uh, in some of their other games that they play. I think the real difference maker in this game is going to be the legs of Joe Burrow. Yeah, and if anybody has the personnel to do it, it's definitely the Rams. I mean, if you say, I guess we have to give somebody up to run contain on a side and not rush the passer as much or drop somebody back to be a spy. Well, I have Aaron Donald and I have Leonard Floyd and I have Von Miller. Like, You can take one of those guys off and you still have a game record that's just ready to destroy your defensive line like they can get it done and still get a rush and there's nobody who's better suited for that 
than this team. Yeah, it should be a really should be a really great matchup. Um, it should be fun to watch. I'm looking forward to watching it for sure. Oh, I did, I did, I did look this up. I wanted to bring this up. So you mentioned that nine of the twenty-two Rams starters are fell. That it was either ten or eleven of the Falcons' offensive starters were first-round picks in that year. Do you guys remember that? They had right. They had Matt Ryan. Um, I think this was the Todd Gurley. They had Ridley and Julio Jones at wide receiver. Laquan Treadwell, the castaway from Minnesota, was their third wide receiver. Um, they just had all kinds of first-round talent on offense. It obviously didn't work, but I, it, you, your stat just reminded me of that, where they just had a stacked offense as far as draft picks went. Do we want to go on the board and say winners and scores? I, I don't want to put it on the write that down board, but I will, I will give my... my we'll, uh, we'll do a little secondary board. Prediction. Yeah. Informally, I'm going to say um, we're going – I'm going a very safe 27-24 Bengals. Okay. Kyle? I'm, I'm going to go on the board. I think, I think it's going to be an Evan McPherson walk-off field goal. Final score, 23-21 Bengals. Okay. I think I'm going to go counter to the uh... – the trend here, I'm going to say that the ending score is going to be 27 to 13, and that will be the Rams taking that. I am going to stick with the popular opinion of the Bengals. The score, um, let's say, let's do some math here. Busting let's out the calculator. Th- yeah, uh, 34-28. So I am the only one going with the betting favorite of the Rams. It seems like it, yeah. We're all thinking Cincinnati. I don't know. I, maybe we're just jumping on the hype train. They've They're looked hot. good, and the Rams have just looked eh. And generally, that's just a bad thing to do in the playoffs is jump on the hype train. Generally, the hype train doesn't doesn't get to the station. But Their, uh, Defensive end, Sam Hubbard, says that the team wants to win the Super Bowl to honor Harambe. And I think that <laughs> that spirit... From uh, Mr. Hubbard really encapsulates how much they want to win this game. They're going to do it. I, I don't even know what to, to say to that. It, I okay. assume Vegas already took that into account. So, yeah, <laughs> they usually do. Yeah, this, the spirit of a gorilla was taken into account on the money line. Yeah, they're really good at that. Okay, sounds good. You know, the, the Lombardi trophy isn't enough, so we had to... Have a, a six-year-old dead gorilla? How <laughs> has that was that was that that long ago? Was it longer than that? I don't even remember. It was, it was 2016, while. I think. Was well, it about six, six years. years ago? Yeah, math. Math is hard. Okay, we made our predictions for the game. Uh, let's do one more topic for the Super Bowl, um, the halftime show. Uh, much anticipated every year is going to be Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar. So a lot of legends in that lineup. Um, it should be interesting. I'll be curious to see who gets the most stage time since they, pretty much every single one of them could probably headline a show by themselves, much less sharing the stage. Mike, uh, do you have thoughts on this? I know that this is the time of the game that you look forward to the most. You're a commercials and halftime kind of guy for sure. I mean, I am a commercials guy. I will give you that. I, I will be watching the commercials for sure. Um, but so first of all, I've never heard of Mary J. Blige. I don't know who that person is. Um, I've probably heard some of their music without knowing it, but you know, there's that. And second of all, no. Halftime of the Super Bowl is the time you take a nap. 
That's nap time. Get that quick 15-minute power nap in and then grab something off the food table and get back for the second half. Take your power nap. You'll need it to get through that second half. Were you sad when you didn't know what left shark was? No, I quickly figured out what left shark was. <laughs> it's, it's easy to find a small clip, but you don't need to watch 20 minutes plus of what's usually an absolute disaster just to catch the one part of the disaster that's actually funny. Fair like, that's my theory. All right, all right. Well, I I don't have high expectations for Super Bowl halftime shows. Plus, I just don't like the idea of extending halftime of the biggest sporting event in the world, second biggest sporting event in the world, for a rap concert or whatever genre of music this is. Rap? I don't know. Yeah, it'd be what are these people saying? A lot of hip hop. Okay. Uh, I I anticipate this will be one of the better halftime performances we've seen in the past decade, even. Uh, but we'll move on to some more sports-based things. I just have a quick, quick update in the NBA. Not a ton has been going on. The trade deadline is on the 10th, uh, Thursday at 2 p.m. Central Time. Uh, so far, I covered one trade earlier on a couple episodes ago, and we've had a couple more. Uh, the Cavaliers just got Karis LeVert and a 2022 second-round draft pick in exchange for Ricky Rubio, who is injured for the rest of the season but should be back to be a solid player. A lottery-protected 2022 first and a 2022 second, as well as a 2027 second-round pick from the Pacers. And then the L.A. Clippers just received Norman Powell and Robert Covington, who just got acquired by the Trailblazers and is now getting traded to the Clippers. And the Clippers are giving up Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, Keon Johnson, and a future second-round pick. So that's just your update there. We should have a couple more... Uh, on next episode, I would anticipate a few more deals uh, coming up on Thursday. I don't know that we will see anything too groundbreaking or exciting. I haven't heard any rumors uh, about bigger stars. So if there are deals in the world being kept under wraps, but hopefully something exciting happens and we'll see what's going on on Thursday. We will tweet out anything that's super exciting to keep you updated at the time. Uh, Mike, you want to hit us up on the... Oh yeah, go ahead. I, I, w- I will get to the MLB in just a second, but I was so, but with, with it being Pro Bowl weekend and the NHL on its all star break um, this last weekend, I was bored. Uh, there was a lack of sport. So I was looking at the NBA standings. So I noticed that um, the, uh, the, what is it, the three best records as well are in the West, as well as the two worst records being in the East. But there's the but the middle of the East, I think, is better than the middle of the West. Which conference do you think is best? The standings were just a little confusing for me when I was looking at that, trying to determine which conference is best. I would argue that the standings pretty much explain it to you. Uh, I think that the Suns and the Warriors are definitely a cut above. The Grizzlies have been killing it recently, and we'll see if they can continue that. Um, hopefully, because I'm going to a game later on uh, like a month or two from now so i'd like to see them do well there uh but the top to bottom the eastern conference is just really solid when you have the brooklyn nets sitting in the seventh seed i mean they've had a lot of injuries and Kyrie has his whole thing that he can't play at home games but like the heat the bulls the bucks the Cavs, the sixers the raptors are resurgent this year they're all really great squads so they're it's like a pseudo big 12 thing where they're just kind of beating up on each other a little bit um, honestly, the top six seeds for both conferences are really good. I would argue that if everything, if everyone is healthy, I'm going to say that the Western conference is still better than 
the Eastern Conference, but they've had a lot of issues with injury and people sitting out. So right now it feels pretty even to me, the more even than it has been in quite a while. Thank you. I was just curious looking at the standings. So. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that's that's some pretty good insight. I was taking a look at that as well. And yeah, just from just from an outsider who wants to, you know, stay up to date, that's that's really good intel. So thanks, Ariane. No problem. Speaking of Intel, uh, one of the our resident baseball aficionado, Mike, can you can you fill us in on on what is happening between the players and the owners uh, in this Major League Baseball lockout that's been dragging on? Yeah. Um, so the lockout officially started more than two months ago now on uh, December second. Um, you haven't heard us talk much about it since then, and that's really because there's not been much to talk about. They're not making hardly any progress. Um, the players have dropped some of their more, um, I'll call them outrageous demands the, um, for free agency earlier um, and things like that, and they've agreed to some of the things the, uh, the league wants, like expanding playoffs. Um, but really at the core issue is, about um, luxury tax thresholds, competitive balance, and um, salaries for younger players. They really haven't made hardly any progress um, in the last two months. They've hardly been doing um, any negotiating um, up until the most recent um, uh, the most recent two weeks, two or three weeks where they've started to negotiate some, but still haven't made much progress. Um, just as last week, the owners asked for a federal mediator to uh, step in and help the negotiations. Uh, the players refused, which on the surface and probably even at a medium level seems like a bad decision if they want to get something done. But basically what the players are saying is, why should we bring in a mediator to help negotiating if in their opinion, Major League Baseball hasn't started negotiating to begin with? The players just feel like the owners haven't given anything to begin with, so they don't want to start mediating from a point um, that isn't anywhere near resolved, right? The owners haven't uh, made a good faith effort to start in, in the players' opinion, so they're not willing to bring in a mediator until the league actually tries, basically. Um, I don't don't know if that's smart. I don't know. I feel like both teams are trying to win a PR battle instead of actually get this thing done. When realistically, most fans don't care who it seems like wins. We just want to see baseball. And we're going to start to uh, to lose out on baseball here because spring training was supposed to start, um, usually starts right around Valentine's Day. And I think uh, the 14th is the day that most teams, pitchers and catchers, were supposed to um, report to spring training, and, and that's not going to happen at this point. Um, even if they got a deal done like right now, it would still take a week to get um, players organized, um, get COVID intake testing done, um, things like that that would have to get done. Um, spring training is already not going to start on time. Um, will we actually get any spring training in? Will we actually get 162 games in? I don't know. It seems uh, I'm, I'm becoming more and more pessimistic by the day. Um, the owners do have their yearly meetings coming up this week. The hope is that a proposal 
will follow from the owners um, late this week after those meetings. And hopefully the owners um, get a little bit closer to the players, enough to the point where they can start some consistent back and forth. But unless that happens, we're in real danger of losing games. You probably got to get something done in the next three weeks. It's probably the timeline you got to still make a a uh, a March or a March thirty first opening day as is currently scheduled. Um, does that make sense? Are there any questions about the negotiations from any of you? What do you think would happen if they can't actually reach a negotiations? Like, is there just no baseball? Do they do what the NFL did in twenty twelve with the refs and bring in replacement MLB players? Like, what is a reasonable expectation to to see if everything does fall through? Yeah. So the most likely, um, the most likely, what am I trying to say? Um, the most likely outcome is that there's just not baseball, um, right? That I mean, in previous lockouts and strikes, yeah, games have just been canceled um, if they, they can't come to agreement. Now, the only players that are on teams' 40-man rosters are um, uh, are in the players' union, right? So this lockout doesn't affect non-40-man roster players. So in theory, if they wanted to, um, the owners could start a season by um, allowing players that aren't currently on the 40-man roster to come up and play for the major league squad, given the stipulation that they wouldn't join the union. Um, they could do that as a way to try to break the strike. Now that or, uh, break the players, excuse me, it's a lockout, not a strike. Now this will end the strike because it will absolutely decimate one side or the other. Because either this will be a success and then all of the young players will just leave the union in droves to start playing and then the union will lose all their leverage. Or this will completely tank and no one will watch and then the owners will lose all their leverage um, and they'll have to settle for the players. Um, So I don't actually see this happening just because it's too much risk on both sides. Um, It's just not going to happen. If... I'm 99% sure it'll result in canceled games. I don't see anything else happening, realistically. But that last thing is a remote possibility and would be legal according to labor relations. So, I read a really interesting article today. Uh, it was on ESPN.com. Jesse Rogers was interviewing um, one of the executive board members, Andrew Miller, on the MLBPA. Uh, so I would just check that out if you're curious about the lockout and you'd like to hear a player voice from it. He just kind of gives some of their viewpoints on there. And it was an interesting read and pretty short. So take a look on that if you're curious. He talks about them rejecting the mediator and salary caps or salary floors in the in the MLB. So it's kind of a fun read. If you have time, check it out. Yeah, we'll we'll keep you informed on if there's new negotiations. The closer we get to the season, I expect these negotiations to pick up. As soon as spring training starts, the owners start losing money because the owners actually make a fair amount of money off spring training tickets and merchandise, etc. Whereas the players don't actually start getting paid until um, the regular season starts. So right now the owners are going to start to feel the pinch and maybe that'll get some movement here. We'll see. Um, With the Olympics happening though, um, we're going to go back to something we talked about um, during the 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 uh, the peak of the COVID uh, sports shutdowns, and we're going to go back to doing Mike stupid rules about Olympic sports. Wyatt raised this question 
um, to me when we were talking about uh, stupid rules. And we'll talk, um, that's how figure skating is scored. If you like me and Wyatt, you've been watching a lot of Olympic figure skating these last few nights with the team competition just ending. Um, so we li- so what, uh, there are two components to a figure skating score. So first there is a, um, a technical element score or a TES where essentially each move, be it a spin or a jump or et cetera, has a base value um, of points that it can be worth, right? So based on the difficulty of the trick. Um, so there's a base value for each move, and then the judge can either give somebody um, um, minus five to plus five more points than that base based on how well it's executed. And um, they and those technical um, scores are just added on, you know, one after another for each for each um, move that the skater performs, and that gives you a uh, technical element score. That's one half of your score. Um, the second half of your score is um, a program component score or or a PCS. Um, there are five categories for your PCS, each one graded on a scale of 0 to 10. Um, so there's um, just your skating skills, um, your transitions, how you perform between moves, um, your performance in general, your, your composition, how the program is arranged, things like that. And then um, the interpretation, how well you conveyed the music and how well you, you sort of sold your sold your show, how well it was themed, sort of, things like that. So that, that score can range from 0 to 50, um, right? But um, the, um, the PCS is also um, multiplied by a factor, um, depending on the events, that makes it more in line with the TES, um, so that the two of them have equal weight. So your, your TES... Um, is just a straight up score, and then your PCS is a number zero to fifty that's multiplied by a factor based on the event, and then you just add those two up, and then you subtract any deductions, which usually result um, if you fell or things like that. Those will result in deductions. Um, so you just take your TES plus your PCS, you um, sum them up, subtract deductions. That's your total score. Highest total score wins. Um, so because of that um, TES and how it depends on the difficulty of your routine, there is no such thing as a, uh, a perfect score in um, figure skating. It's not like gymnastics, you know, where there's an over, you know, overall perfect 10, nothing like that. There is no perfect score um, in Olympic figure skating. Wyatt, does that sort of clear up your question? Yeah, for sure. I, I didn't realize there was that many components to that component score, that the second second cumulative score. So interesting. Good stuff. Yeah, no problem. Happy to help. And if listeners, if you have any questions about uh, what's going on in the Olympics, how are things judged, scored, evaluated, etc., uh, hit us up on Instagram uh, or tweet us or send us a message um, on our contact page, and we'll take those into consideration as we're, we're doing Mike Stupid Rules here for the next couple of weeks. Um, as always, following Mike's Stupid Rules, we will have our Write That Down Predictions accountability sh- session. It'll be a little short here, only two predictions to come off the board. Um, one of them is from Wyatt, 
Um, he predicted that the Washington football team, when its new name was released, that it would not be an animal. Now, so it was released. They are officially the Washington um, Guardian. No, what are they? I forgot what they Commanders. are. Commanders. Commanders. Thank you. I almost called them the Guardians. That's uh, the Cleveland baseball team new name. I apologize. They're the Commanders. Now, I believe when you made this prediction, Wyatt, you said that anything that is human counts as an animal. Is that correct? That is correct. So I would say that a com- right, a commander is a human. So therefore, this is an animal by those standards. Does everyone agree with that, Wyatt? Do you protest that? I do not protest that. All right. With no protest from Wyatt, that is uh, officially wrong then. So Wyatt gets a... The other prediction to come off the board was from Arian. He predicted the Cyclones would beat OSU, Missouri, NKU to win three straight. They got the first two, but then as Kyle told you, they got beat by KU. That Arian gets a... That is it for our accountability session this week. Um, Moving on to our Write That Down prediction segments, I'm going to get us started um, by saying this NFL offseason... Um, the Vikings trade Kirk Cousins, and they get at least a second-round pick for him. So a second or a first-round pick or some combination that involves at least one second or first-round pick. Where do you think he goes? I mean, Tampa, New Orleans, Denver, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. And then a swap with the 49ers. The 49ers. um You could send them to Seattle if they're going to move on from Russell Wilson. There are teams that are going to be in the market for a quarterback. Now, the team has not said they're going to move on from Kirk Cousins. Um, The new head coach um, has a relationship with Kirk Cousins. Um, Him and Kevin O'Connell work together back in Washington. um, So they do know each other. Um, So, yeah. That, that, that's about all the info I got for you. There's not like a percentage I can put on it to help you out. I'll let Kyle go first. Thank you for your service. Uh, <laughs> I think this is more likely than not. I just don't. I With the loyalty, like there isn't a need to have loyalty to like your quarterback. If you can trade him, you can. I mean, the asking price is large. They're paying him a lot of money, so that's going to have to be a thing that gets worked through is this a triple i mean if it you said a first round pick that might be a triple but because it's a second round pick at least a second maybe a double i don't know why it arian i like your analysis there i feel like it's more likely than not they do trade him i tend to lean towards a triple there's been no actual tipping of a hand that they will trade him and maybe it's just my opinion personally but if you there's no reason to run if you're not running towards something. And unless you got something to pick it up, why why trade for, you know, unless you have a better quarterback, why are you getting rid of the one that will at least get you to the playoffs probably? You might as well unless they're the just going into year. full rebuild, rebuild mode. But well, I don't, I don't know if they are or not. His, his, his cap hit this year is $45 million. You can't realistically pay Kirk Cousins that much money and be competitive, you either got to trade him or we or restructure him. That's what I'm thinking. Right. And I don't, yeah. So I don't think Kirk Cousins is going to restructure, especially since he went into Minneapolis wanting a fully guaranteed deal. So double. I got double. All right. Double, double it is. 
Everything from Josh yeah, this week, he's still alive? Yep, he's still alive. He's doing good. Um, he is also starting to take a look at the NBA with uh, other sports seasons winding down. And he is predicting that the uh, Bucks will pass the Bulls in the standings by the end of the week. So specifically the Bucks and the Bulls he's talking about. Ariane, we'll let you lead off on this one. I wasn't prepared. I didn't look. Uh, end of the week would be what Sunday? Is at, that correct? End of day. End of day Sunday. Yeah. End of day Sunday. So that's the thirteenth. The Bucks. Let me pull up the schedule here. I should have been looking forward in the outline. Currently, they are they are um, tied in the standings, but uh, the Bulls are percentage points ahead. Okay. Um, so they play the, the they play at Los Angeles and they play at. Phoenix, the Bucks do before the end of the uh, week. Clip, Clippers or Lakers? Oh, sorry, the Lakers. And then for the Bulls, um, let's see. They are playing Phoenix currently at home, and then they are at Charlotte and versus Minnesota. And you said they are tied in the standings right now. Is that correct? Yes, but the Bulls are percentage points ahead. So okay, um, I would say the Bulls have an easier schedule. They also have three games. As compared to the Bucks, two to get past, uh, double or triple, I guess. Kind of hard to, you know. I, I, yeah, I'd give I give it a prob- triple. I, w- I will trust your your expertise on this one, Ariane. I'll just agree. Same. With that. I, it's yep. out of my league. What did I say? The thirteenth is the end. Okay, so they actually have a game tonight, the ninth, the eleventh, and the twelfth. They have four games compared to the Bucks, two games. And they are pretty much all winnable games. Phoenix will be tough. They're playing that right now. Charlotte, challenging, but they should be able to win that. Minnesota and Oklahoma City is just a tank fest. I would say I would expect the Bulls to come out on top, so I, it would be less likely that the Bucks could actually pull that off. I'd give it a triple. Yeah, that game against the Thunder, I agree. That one's basically a win, so I agree with the triple. Wyatt, what about you? Our poor host, Kyle, sounds like he has an ulcer in somewhere in his body where you get ulcers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to predict that he gets another ulcer by the end of uh, the Write That Down prediction season. Um, hmm. well, I'm not sure how to attach to this. I mean, I'm just going to say this is probably a home run. Um, yeah, Can't give I mean, him a home run for that. I mean, I would tend to agree that it is. When was the last time Ain't you had no those? way. You, you've had, what? Yeah. Like, do you expect to get two in the same year? Is that common? Yes. yes. We're going for <laughs> two. Um, uh, Can Kyle even vote on this one since he's specifically involved in the outcome? True. Probably not. So granted, like this, granted, the outcome that would get Wyatt's prediction would be unpleasant. Oh, never mind. Right. No. Is yeah. solely upon my sh- me yeah. relaying that information to you. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to report this honestly, Kyle. That's that's part of the integrity thing. I will. Like you can do whatever you want to try to prevent it or make it happen, but you have to report it honestly if it if it happens. But I agree, he probably shouldn't get a vote. I'm voting for home run. I think I would agree. I don't even know. Have any of you ever had ulcers other than Kyle? I don't even know how that happens to you. <laughs> it's not. some sort of bacteria, but I don't know. I don't know how. I've never had one. Seems unlikely then. I would agree home run. Safe. Home run it is. You got Kyle? Kyle? Uh, so this season, 
Uh, I'm saying that with the Royals have a need at third base, uh, I don't know if this is going to be brought up talent from the farm or not, but I'm saying that their big splash of free agency is landing Chris Bryant to be their starting third baseman. Chris? I guess technically he doesn't have to start at first base. He could be an outfielder, but the Royals land Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant, boy. So what happens if the lock? So what happens if this lockout extends past the end of the write that down season? Is this prediction long? It's, do we roll it over into next season? What do we? We do? would let's roll it over into next season then. Okay. It, so then, it, with the contingency that the lockout carries over into the next. So so the the next contract that Chris Bryant signs will be with the Royals and we'll Correct. roll this over into next season if the lockout continues so he can't sign. Correct. I'm fine with that. You're fine with those parameters, Wyatt and I am? Yep. Okay. Um I don't know how to handicap this. I mean um, I, I would probably no just say triple as my default for something like this, maybe home run. I'd give it a home run if we got rid of the lockout stipulation. Otherwise, I'm going to say a triple. Okay, I have no idea what's rumored right now or what people are talking the, about, so I'll just the, agree. They, yeah, they can't even have contact with the players, so there are no rumors. Everything is just pure speculation because teams can't even talk to the players. So Right. Triple it is. All right. Ariane? You got Ariane. Oh, also, fun fact, as we were recording this just now, uh, unranked Virginia just knocked off number seven Duke with basically a buzzer-beating three-pointer to win 69-68. So that's kind of uh, some breaking news that nice. won't be breaking for you, but it was breaking for us. Um, my prediction is that the Super Bowl MVP will be a defensive or special teams player. It will not be an offensive player. Mm. Super Bowl MVP is a non-offensive player. How, how often does that happen? Um, Let me look. I was going to go defensive straight up, but then I remembered, you know, Mr. McPherson. And I was like, well, I want to put special mm-hmm. teams on there. because I want to see the long already... snapper get the MVP. I think that would be great. <laughs> what could a long, long snapper so do? That would, yeah. All right, so if you go back the last 10 years, um, quarterback, quarterback, Wide receiver, quarterback, quarterback, linebacker, quarterback, linebacker, quarterback, quarterback. So 80% offense? Yep. But if you go back further than, if you go back the next five years, you got four more quarterbacks and a wide receiver. Okay. So that definitely takes it down a little more. It's such an offensive award, typically. Uh, Yeah. I'm Uh, I'm between a triple and a home run for this. I'm I'm, probably leaning towards. Triple, but I'm. I think I'm fine with the triple. I don't think it's quite a home run because yeah. I mean, look at the defense of the Rams. Yeah, if the I Rams could... win, man. You got how many players who could be defensive MVP? A lot. <laughs> so yeah, that's fair. It's not like a Tom Brady back there either. I mean, you have Joe Burrow and Matt Stafford. So right. Yeah, I I could see it. I could, on offense, though, I could see it being a Cooper Cup. Or right, exactly. That's fair. That's fair. Or, or yeah. Jamar Chase if he has like 280 yeah. yards or whatever. Joe Mixon. Yeah, it's been a long time since a running back won Super Bowl MVP, though. But the best running the backs these days are basically wide receivers anyway. They just happen to run the ball sometimes. I mean, look at Debo Smith. He literally is a wide receiver. <laughs> Debo Samuel, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you got to go all the way back to Super Bowl 32 with Terrell Davis. The last time a running back won Super Bowl MVP. 
So we think a but triple the year for this before one? that, a kick. Yeah, I think a triple. The year before that, you did get your special teams player, a kick returner, uh, won it in uh, Super Bowl 31. So. Well, it's a double, three triples, and a home run. That concludes our Write That Down prediction segment, which means we're at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode 162 of the 8311Cast. Make sure to check out our Twitter and Instagram at 8311Cast before we listen to our next episode next week. Signing off for the 8311Cast, are your hosts. Kyle Mersh. Mike Ludwig. Ariane Barry. And Wyatt Teeter. We'll talk to you all again next week. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones. Go Cyclones.